I want to invite everyone to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Uh, today we're in Genesis chapter 9, and uh, like last week with Noah and the flood, we're going to cover quite a bit of ground uh, today. So we're in chapter 9, verse 18, to chapter eleven, thirty-two. So about halfway through chapter 9 to all the way to the end of chapter 11. And, uh, anyway, uh, um, someone recently asked uh, people on the internet this question. Non-Americans, what does a dead give away when somebody is American? In other words, what makes an American instantly recognizable in another country? Here are a few answers. Wearing lots of North Face or loud branded clothing. Right? Okay, Bass Pro, right? This big Bass Pro symbol on your shirt, I guess. Alright, telling one's whole life story within 15 minutes of meeting them. So like, hey, where are you from? Well, I'm from Germany. Well, I'm from Texas. My granddad, well, he was in World War II and, you know, we started off in Pennsylvania and we moved down. You know how it goes, right? Nothing wrong with that. Okay, the prepared for anything look they have about them. Fanny packs, backpacks, bottled water, camera packs. This person went on to say, Americans are the only ones who can visit a perfectly modernized city as though it were some uncharted jungle. Okay? Incredibly loud, but incredibly friendly. Kind of like the donkey and Shrek, right? <laughs> really loud, but really, really friendly. Uh, and, and going along with that, someone else said, when you can hear them before you see them. Okay? Uh, someone else said, Americans describe distance in terms of time as opposed to miles or kilometers. So, like, when someone tells me, oh, it's, you know, eight miles away, I'm, I'm not, I don't care about miles, actually. Like, I want to know how many minutes is that. It's 60 miles per hour, you know, 15 minutes, 10 minutes, whatever. I guess it would be eight minutes. That's pretty easy if you're on 60 miles per hour. But anyway, right, so we, time and, uh, driving distance in time as opposed to miles or kilometers. How far is Kansas City? Oh, it's two, three hours, not however many miles. Uh, one person described how his European grandpa, who served in World War II, uh, uh, had a test to uh, see who was a, might be a German spy. And uh, they would ask whoever they thought this person to sing the fourth verse of the Star Spangled Banner. And if the person instantly started singing, they knew it was likely a German spy because the Germans like taught them like all these things so they could pass these tests. But Americans, there is no fourth verse. Right? The Star Spangled Banner. So we probably wouldn't start singing. Okay? Another one was blue jeans. Right? You see someone out in a European country wearing blue jeans, they're likely American. And then my personal favorite, uh, this person said, the dead giveaway is when they call me honey or sweetie or darling. I love Americans and I love those terms of endearment. All right, when you see these things, you know you have an American on your hands. It makes us instantly recognizable. And when we come to chapter Genesis chapters 9 to 11, we're told a lot of different things, right? We're told about Noah and his sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. We're told what happens to them and their genealogies. We're told about the story about this tower called Babel. And while they might seem like random bits of information, they're showing us something important. These things are making the work of God recognizable. 
when you see this, you should know that God is at work in history. He's not a distant God. He didn't put history on a timer, like twisting it and then letting it go, like a little toy, waiting for things to happen. Accidents don't happen in history. God works in history and God moves history. In fact, these chapters are really important because they set the setting for our next major biblical character, Abraham. But we aren't getting to Abraham today, not so much, a little bit. He comes in chapter 12, but besides the fact that these chapters set us up for Abraham, these chapters want us to see the dead giveaways that God is the one behind history. These chapters want us to recognize God's work in history. And I believe these chapters show us three major ways that God is at work in history. And so I want us to read. We're actually going to skip around a bit. So first we're going to read uh, in chapter 9, verses 18 to 29. And then we're going to jump to chapter 11 and read verses um, 1 to 9 in chapter 11. Okay. So starting in verse 9, verse, chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to, began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And skipping down in chapter 11, we go through chapter 10, which is the so-called Table of Nations, and it gives the genealogies, mostly, of, of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then we get to chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one, one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible to them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And then the rest of chapter 11 will then focus on the genealogy of Shem and Shem's descendants to Abraham. And now the first thing that, that jumps out at us as we begin this section 
that's actually a major theme throughout Genesis is this idea of cursing and blessing. So God blesses Adam and Eve when he makes them, right? Genesis chapter 2. Adam and Eve are then cursed as a result of the fall and eating the fruit. Um, Cain is, is cursed because of his murder. Noah and his family are blessed, right, with salvation in the ark, while, while the rest of creation is cursed with the flood. And here, even among Noah's family, the, the chosen family, there's cursing and blessing. So this leads to our first point. God is at work to redeem through curse. God is at work to redeem through curse. Right after the flood, our, our hero, supposed hero, gets himself drunk and passes out naked on the floor, which automatically should lessen Noah's hero status in our minds. And then something really sketchy happens. Ham walks in, sees his father's nakedness, and then goes and he, and he basically brags about it to his brothers. We're not told anything else, but, but here's the main issue that I think Scripture is presenting for us here. It's that instead of seeing nakedness, especially his father's nakedness as something of shame, he sees it as something that's to be boasted about. Right? He's, he's boasting in the, the shame of nakedness. Uh, just the other day, Mallory and I were talking about how like rebellious teenagers are. And look, I say that like not just like every teenager is that way. Me and Mal were certainly that way. It's just that a lot of teenagers do exactly what they think is going to make their parents mad. So, right, I'm going to listen to music that my parents don't like just because they don't like it. I'm going to dress this way because my parents don't like it. I'm going to get piercings, tattoos, whatever. Right? So, so rebellion is celebrated, right? Especially among American teenagers, I'd say. Right? It's kind of a similar thing that's happening with, with him. And instead of seeing it as something that's foolish and shameful, he's, he's celebrating it. He's boasting it. And in Ham's case, this leads to curse. Noah curses. Cursed be Cain. A servant of servants shall be, he be to his brothers. And, and listen, he, he doesn't necessarily curse Ham. He, he curses Ham's son, Canaan. Which is really interesting, but Basically, if you're an Israelite and you're reading this in Moses' day, right here is why the people of the promised land are their enemies, antagonistic to them. Because, I don't know, thousands of years ago, right, they were cursed. And right here is why, as Israelites, they shouldn't just presume they can get away with sin and shameful living. Just because they escaped the curse of Canaan. Right doesn't mean they won't be cursed like Canaan. They'll be cursed just like him if they choose to live in rebellion like him. It's part of the whole law, right? The blessings and the cursings of, of the law of Moses. So this idea of curse provides the setting as we go into chapter 10, which is a long list we call the, the table of nations. It describes in short, there's 70 here, uh, the genealogies of Japheth, Ham, and Shem, and how they spread out over the earth. Now, this is by no means an exhaustive list, but its point is to show that they're spread out all over the, all, all the earth. And this, this is supposed to be a good thing, right? right? The original mandate that God gives Adam and Eve, and then Noah, is to fill the earth. 
You're not meant to stay in one spot. You're meant to go out in all the earth and subdue it. But this isn't something that just happened. This too is a result of curse. Because you see, chapter 10's Table of Nations comes before the Tower of Babel in the text, right? There, you have chapter 10, Table of Nations, and Tower of Babel. But actually, it happens after the events of the Tower of Babel. You follow me? So chronologically, Tower of Babel happens first, and then the Table of Nations happens and spreading out over all the earth. What happens with the Tower of Babel? What you see is, instead of spreading out over the face of the earth, humanity is building a city in rebellion, in defiance of God's mandate. And and more than just defying God's mandate, saying we're not going to do that, they're pridefully building a name for themselves. They're establishing rule, dominion, and authority, not in the image of God, but in their own name. In their own image. Alan Ross wrote that since this decision was open rebellion against God's original commission, their sin as well may be labeled hubris. That is, immense pride that leads to disobedience to God. Someone else did this earlier in Genesis. Remember? Cain also built a city in defiance of God's command. That he would be a wanderer, didn't he? And hey, I believe the Bible is divinely inspired. God inspired the writing of the Bible, which also means that the Bible is a really well-written book. Like, it's, its themes are connected, it's got ironies, it's got twists, it's a really well-written book. I mean, take your favorite, like, classic piece of literature, and the Bible is that, but it's, like, even better because it's divinely inspired, right? And, and that's in that scene because of how the author describes the irony of the Tower of Babel. Okay, I want you to see this irony. Right, in chapter 4, they're building a tower. And they said, let us build ourselves a city and a tower that will reach its top in the heavens. Let's reach God, they say. Okay? And then in verse 5, the Lord had to do what? He had to come down and see the city and the tower. That's funny. That's funny, in, in like direct uh, contradiction to these, the Lord says, let's go down and see what they're doing. It's funny. It's ironic. But it's also at this point that God judges humanity by dividing them by language and culture. Humanity only spreads out in compliance with God's design because of the consequences of God's curse. But, in that same reality, is a hint. And and just a hint, that this curse isn't an in and of itself. Like, God's not just cursing and and is done with it. The The curse provides the setting for redemption. In other words, curse becomes the means by which God will redeem. Just as Cain was cursed with wandering, so the people of Babel are cursed with wandering. 
And who is the next wanderer that we're introduced to? Who wanders his whole life and never finds a home? Abraham. Abraham is a wanderer. And wandering, Genesis wants us to see it, is a result of the curse. Right? Not having land, not having a home, that's, that's part of curse. Wandering means you don't have a home. Wandering happens when Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. But Abraham the wanderer will become the beginning of blessing for all the wandering nations. The curse is not an obstacle to God's blessing. In His divine sovereignty, God takes the curse that comes as a result of human sinful decision and through it brings brings redemption. Which means that all that we see as a result of curse, war, disease, famine, trafficking, God is at work through it to bring redemption. Look, I don't know how God is going to resolve all of history, especially something so blatantly evil like the Holocaust. I have no idea how God is going to redeem that. But what Genesis 9-11 shows us is that God absolutely redeems curse and things that result from the curse. Which actually leads fittingly to our next point. God is at work to sustain by grace. Now, um, this, I don't know if you caught this, probably not, because I'm my own summary of Scripture probably didn't do it, but this section has a distinct flow to it. There's a flow, right? Even though it's not like a complete story and there's genealogy, there's there's a, a, a flow to it. It starts narrow. It gets wider and wider, and then it gets narrow again. All right, it starts with Noah and his three sons. It gets wider and wider with a table of nations and immense genealogies, only to narrow, narrow down again to Shem's line in chapter 11. Okay, say you're going south uh, on 65. You're on Sunshine, right? Four lane, easy peasy, and then like, whoosh, like all these like loops and circles come and and some. Especially if you're coming north from Ozar, you don't know which way to go. But yeah, it gets wider and then it got, kind of gets back narrow again if you just say, of course. That's it's just right how this, the flow of this passage is, right? But instead of this intersection <laughs> helping the flow of traffic, there's a massive roadblock, and that's the Tower of Babel. We are hardly one chapter separated from the flood of the entire earth because of sin, and here we are again, right back at it. And this time, there's no Noah. Right? There's no one in this story, right, in the Tower of Babel that God said, that looks down and says, oh, I'll choose him. All of humanity is once again united in rebellion. And once again, God would have every right to judge by destruction. One chapter away, and here we are again. Every day, we build our towers of defiance and rebellion by our sin. Every day. Every day, we resolve not only 
to not sin anymore, but we go right back to it in the next day. This, this picture of humanity that we see here, sin, flood, oh no, let's not do this again, sin, rebellion, this is, that's a pattern for each of us in this room. Which leads to this fitting quote by a guy named Scott Sauls. He said, we are not just undeserving of grace, we are ill-deserving of grace. So a, a politician or a leader might be undeserving of your support, right? Because maybe they're a no-name, they don't have much influence, they don't much have, have much power, whatever. They might be undeserving of your support. But that same leader politician becomes ill-deserving when they take your support and your donations and spend it all on themselves. They're not only just undeserving, but you're ill-deserving. You deserve not just not my support, but punishment for wrongdoing. So humanity is the worst kind of politicians who take an enormous amount of God's generosity to us and spend it all on our own pride, our own egos, and our own sins. And yet, instead of a global flood, we have a global genealogy. In other words, instead of global death, we have global progeny. Instead of the global ceasing of life, we now have global continuation of life. And that is precisely because of the work of grace by God. He's not only not giving us what we deserve here, judgment, right? God is not only showing mercy and not judging. The curse of Babel itself is to keep us from more sin, right? Like God says, if they're not cursed, like, who knows the beginning of what they will do, right? And, and so, uh, and so, this is God's prerogative that He initiated after the flood when He gave Noah the sign of the rainbow. And this is where we get the doctrine called common grace, okay? File that away because it's really important. Common grace means two things. One, it means man is not as bad as he possibly could be. God in His grace keeps man back from sinning to His utmost extent. What a mercy. What a grace. God in His mercy has kept you restrained from sinning grievously. And, and we've sinned in grievous ways. But He has still kept us from even more. Which means even right lost people or whatever don't sin as badly as they could. So that, that's one thing. But secondly, common grace means God provides and sustains despite man's ongoing sin. Jesus said in Matthew 5.45, For He makes His Son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Paul goes on to say in Acts 14, We are telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, He let all nations go their own way a reference to Babel there. But He has not left Himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons, 
He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So like enjoyment of creation, going on these really awesome new trails we have around the lake, uh, delight over food. Listen, I made homemade red beans and rice and Mexican cornbread yesterday to eat for lunch today. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be awesome. And like the joy that we feel over music, those are all part of God's grace to continually sinful creatures. And and if God is at work, right, to sustain all of creation by His grace, even though we continually build babbles, then that makes the calling of Abraham that much more spectacular. This passage starts narrow, goes wide, and gets narrow again because it shows us the line from Shem to Abraham. And Abraham wasn't a spectacular dude. Alright, at least Noah it tells us that he walked with God. Right? He found favor and he walked with God. Noah is just a pagan Gentile. Every indication we have of him is he was worshiping another God. And God calls him. Alan Ross, to quote him again, he said, the call of Abram is a demonstration of sovereign grace in which the Lord singled out one man from the scattered nations and promised to build a nation from him through which he might channel his blessing to the world. So God is not just in the business of of giving good gifts to his creatures, even sinful creatures. He is in the business of bringing about a full and final redemption. And that leads us to our last point. God is at work to bring about blessing. We started off right talking about the curse of, of Canaan as a result of Ham's disobedience. But there's another part to that. Noah d- doesn't just curse one son, he blesses his other sons, doesn't he? Shem and Japheth. But, but it's, it's one line in particular that's, that's traced through redemptive history. And that's the line of Shem. It's, it's Adam to Seth to Noah to Shem all the way to Abraham that we follow that we hoped will come the promised seed from Genesis 3. But when we're introduced to Abraham, we're pretty much told from the get-go that he's not the seed. Alright, we'll get to Genesis 12 after Easter, but God tells Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. In other words, what we're told right at the start is that Abraham is the start of a long line that God plans to bring blessing to the world. No, he's not the, the final point, he's not the consummate point, he's the kind of the beginning point. And that's what makes this whole section interesting, right? You, you're in your Bible as you're reading this and you're reading about this crazy curse. Oh, and then a genealogy. Okay, that's, I don't know what to make of that. And then Babel and then another genealogy. No, what makes this whole thing interesting is we're told all this stuff about curse and blessing and the scattering of nations because ultimately God wants to bring blessing to these nations. God curses Canaan, yes. Does God judge disobedience and sin? Yes. But curse is not 
God's main mode of operation. God is not primarily a cursing God. God is primarily a blessing God. God will later tell Moses in Exodus 34 that He keeps steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and sin, but He will judge the guilty to the third and fourth generations. I was always confused by that. Why does He say that? Because God is much more inclined to bless thousands than He is to punish a few generations. In the same way, even though cursing is a prevalent theme here, God's ultimate inclination is for blessing. Listen, it's just like disciplining your children as a parent. Right? Punishment is not our ultimate inclination. It's for our child's blessing, isn't it? Which is exactly why there's a global focus in these chapters. We're not just told about the world just because. Alright, let's just see what happens to Noah's sons and then leave them in the dust. We're told because it is ultimately these families that God wants to bless. Our God is a global God. And even though they may wander now, even though these families, these nations wander now, the promise that is hinted at is that one day these nations will find a home just like Adam or Abraham. The nations are scattered, divided, and in exile, but one day there will be, before the throne of God, a great multitude that no one can count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language. The nations that God scatters will be the nations that He gathers around His throne for His own glory. That is God's attitude. Not primarily one of cursing, though cursing happens. It's primarily an inclination of blessing. Later, fast forward 4,000 so years. Acts 2. The Holy Spirit. Jesus has died. Jesus is resurrected. And the Holy Spirit comes on the apostles. And, and what happens? Every nation is represented in Jerusalem, isn't it? And every nation and every language hears the apostles speaking what? Their own language. Some call Pentecost the reversal of Babel. I don't want to be nitpicky, but I think it's better to call it the redemption of Babel. Because language, ethnicity and nationality are not removed at Babel. They are preserved. In eternity before the throne room of God, ethnicity, culture, language, all of that's preserved. But it is through Babel that God works redemption. Babel was the result of human sin, but God takes human sin and works it into His plan of redemption. Right, we later in Genesis in Genesis 50, God takes the sin of Joseph's brothers, what they meant for evil, and he does what? 
He works it for the redemption, not just of Joseph's family, but the saving of many families. God takes the sin of the whole world and works it into their redemption in Christ. Babel creates the need for a Savior and God provides Him. How astonishing! God uses the sin of Babel to save us from the curse of Babel by bringing curse down on His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And blessing? Blessing is found in Christ. Blessing is found in tearing down our Babels and laying down our sinful and prideful natures. And in Christ, God takes all your sin. Listen! If you are in Christ, God takes all your sin. Past sin, before you were saved. Present sin, while you're saved. And future sin. The sins that you have yet to commit, God covers in Christ. And He takes the blessing that Christ earned and He places it on you. Now, in Christ, we are children of who? A redeemer. A redeemer. A redeeming God. And that makes us free. Because God takes our sin and our failures and our mistakes and He redeems us through them. And this is only possible if you trust in Jesus. You can only have this hope if you are trusting in Christ today. Because the curse remains on you as long as you remain in sin. If you remain in Babel, you will be judged with Babel forever. But in Christ, God redeems you fully, freely, and finally. And He takes all your sins, all your messes, all your mistakes, and He redeems them for His glory. We don't always know how. We don't always know when. That's our promise and our faith and our hope in Christ who is our blessing and who redeems us through curse. Let's respond to Him today. Lord Jesus, You redeem us from a curse that is our Our sin is the problem. And our sin creates the very necessity that we have for a Savior. And we absolutely deserve curse. We absolutely deserve judgment. Babel, Babel should be the end. We, we should be cursed to wander. But instead, you set history in motion to bring about redemption. That through time and space, cultures and history, your gospel has been on the move to reach us who are the scattered nations in Springfield, Missouri. You are a global God who 
wants to bless the nations. And you have blessed the nations in Christ. And want to bring them into the fold of Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would get Babel out of our hearts. That we would not live in Babel, but that you would redeem us from Babel and use us for your growing kingdom and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.